John chapter 1. And um, we started a series last Sunday on pursuing Jesus. And just the Lord impressed on my heart last month that we'd really like to take a period of time and just really look at the life of Christ in the book of John. So we're going through the book of John, maybe not every verse, but we're going to highlight who Jesus is, his wonders, his works, his ministry. And we're going to do that together. We're going to look at it um, little by little over the next, I think, five or six Sundays, if the Lord will, will give that to us. So John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34, Pastor Adam just read, and I just want to talk about um, three, three things this morning. Um, in, this, in this scripture that we read, we see a question, who are you, John the Baptist? Uh, who is Jesus to John the Baptist? And how that impacted John the Baptist's personality and character. And I want to bring this into a practical application in our lives. What does that mean for us us beholding the Lamb of God and how that changes our life. Number one, when we think about, when we think about John, um, what did John think about himself? This very unique portion of Scripture. I don't know if you hear a lot of sermons preached on, on John the Baptist. And actually, his name was not John the Baptist. It was just John. And um, John was the kind of person that really didn't come up through the right channels he didn't come up through the religious social stairs that people usually climb, the pharisaical stairs. Uh, he didn't climb any ladders. He wasn't really a well-known person. Um, he was not a rabbi, but he was just a man in the wilderness prophesying that, that the Messiah was going to come. And this really disturbed the, the Pharisees. The Pharisees always were getting disturbed. I mean, they were just a group of individuals that never had any disturbance in their life until Christ comes on the scene, and he really disturbed them. And the Roman overlords that were over these Pharisees, remember Israel at the time was was under the oppression and the domination and the enforced government of the Roman government, which was very oppressive. And the Roman overlords, they were manipulating um, uh, Jewish um, religious and political leaders. And so these overlords didn't like any talk of a Jewish king coming. And so the, the, Pharisees, the Pharisees, seeing their, their angst, uh, were threatened. They felt threatened by the Romans, and they felt the pressure that we've got to go out and check out this John the Baptist. Who is this guy? Let's check him out. And so in verses 19 through 27, they're asking him three questions. Are you the Messiah? And he says, no. John says, no. Are you Elijah? No. Are you that prophet? As talked about in De- Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. No, I'm not that prophet. Then who are you? Then who are you, John the Baptist? Who are you, John? And imagine, you know, remember, John is out there. He's dressed in this really like, kind of like this raggedy, um, rough clothing. It was inside out, so it was definitely not comfortable to to be wearing. He was eating like, it says that he was eating um, like insects and just fruits and nuts. And he was just out there. They, They, he kind of looked like really a madman, didn't he? Um, and, but God was moving, and everybody, people were just kind of streaming out of Jerusalem, and they're going to go and see this man in the wilderness. Like, it's like going up to, I don't know, is there like a wilderness here in this area? I don't know, the other side of Lake Conroe? I don't know. If you live on the other side of Lake Conroe, don't, don't get offended. But there's got to be some, oh, the hill country. There we go. It's like going out to the hill country, 
you know, this, this rugged area, and there's this guy out there, not properly dressed, just living off the land and just preaching a radical message, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the way of the Lord, in, in Isaiah 40, verse 3. And then when they asked him, like, then who are you? And he said, I'm just a voice. I'm a voice crying in the wilderness. In essence, he's just saying, I'm, I'm John the Baptist, but I'm just a voice. And when you hear that, and you look at the man, and you see his, his character and his demeanor, you can actually think, does this person have a low esteem? <laughs> like, living out there off the land, so actually kind of sounds great, doesn't it? In one sense, I'd like to do that. But you might look at him and say, you know, does this man have a self-image problem? I'm just a voice, I'm living in the, in the wilderness. And it can be argued that, that John was, was mistaken about his greatness. When I read this, there's a couple ways to look at what he says, but one way to look at it is, is that John the Baptist didn't really understand how amazing he was. He didn't understand how great he was. He didn't understand how powerful, how God was using him. And, and the question could be asked, well, did, did John the Baptist have some kind of poor self-image that he felt like he had to live out in the wilderness, not enjoy the comforts of life, and do this religious radical thing? And that brings up two things about self-esteem or about how people can look at themselves. Number one, people can be so focused on themselves that they are obsessively critical of themselves. Do you know anybody like that? They're so, they're so obsessively occupied with themselves. They are, they are doubting every decision that they make. I've been there. I, I, know that. I know that feeling. I was there. I lived that way for a while until I got to know Jesus Christ and and I got to know how he loved me and who he was. And we're so critical of ourselves, we're just second-guessing everything that we do, second-guessing every, every step that they, that they take. And it can be so self-defeating, self-sabotaging, right? Or the other way is that we can be looking away like John the Baptist was at someone, capital S, who is so much greater and so much more wonderful and so much more powerful and so much more greater who is, is so wonderful that, that we lose sight of ourselves because we are absolutely enraptured by the magnificence and the holiness and the wonderfulness of Jesus Christ. If you ever want to have that experience, just go to the book of Revelation or read some chapters in, in the book of Ezekiel and just read how these men of God saw Christ. I mean, it's glorious, it's incredible. How many of you have ever sat down and read the book of Revelation describing Jesus Christ? Eyes of like beryl, hair that was like, you know, eyes of fire, and hair that was white as snow. I mean, just this incredible, incredible Christ. And that's, that's my desire these next few weeks, that we would just be so enraptured that we would pursue Christ and that we would fall in love with Christ again, not our love, but just respond to his love to us. Because great, he is great. And I think a church and a nation and a city and a, and a family and a teenager, we have teenagers here, uh, that, that makes Christ great, that exalts Christ in their life, amazing things are going to happen. Amazing things are going to happen. We can look away and we can be so involved. We can be so enraptured with Christ. And that's what John said in John chapter 3, verse 30 and 31. We get this verse, we misquote this verse so often. We quote it like this in John 3.30, John 3.31. I must decrease so that he can increase, right? Is that how we quote it? That's how 
That's how easily it is to quote, but that's how the flesh would quote that. In the Bible, it goes like this, he must increase that I must decrease. And if there's something in our life that is just so, that is so overwhelming and overbearing, and something that's just taking up the bandwidth of our thinking and the bandwidth of our emotions and all of, all of our energy that we have no more life and that we slip into this, 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 this depression, then when we turn away our eyes from ourselves because we can't fix ourselves. Guys, there's no one on the planet that can fix you. There's a lot of psychologists that are out there that can tell you exactly what your problem is. But when you say, when you ask, what is the answer? <laughs> They're going to be like... Here's some opioids over here, or here's some medication, you know. Go to the drugstore. They don't have really any answers. But when you look away from yourself and you look at Jesus Christ and you let him, you let him enrapture you, you begin to focus on him in the Gospels and you see his ministry, you see his, his words and his love for people and you see how he's ministering, then you know what happens? Your eyes get turned away and you are delivered from the poison of the serpent's of our own serpents that bite us. Remember in the book of Numbers, they were in the wilderness and they were being bitten. They had to look away and they had to look at the cross. And I was thinking about Josh's ministry. I love the simplicity of it. I love, I love that, that he does that. Um, I just love just the way, um, and I know it's, you know, he'll, he'll tell you this. He, he said it himself. It's not about him. But it's just this representation. And you know that story about the woman, right? That elderly woman in, in, in her 80s. And I don't like the word elderly, by the way, the older woman, right? And she's, she sees the cross and she's like set free because she's reminded of the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so the question can be asked to John, like, John, how, how do you do that? Like, how can you live in such humility and yet have such a bold, powerful, radical message and yet not live in some kind of beat up self-image and there's two ways that we can develop and, and get our self-assessment of ourselves this is two ways we can do this and both ways are without God and then the third way I want to look in a minute at how we get our self-assessment from, from from God who we are number one if we live in a traditional culture like in the east if you've done some traveling overseas and I know some of you have you've gone to some traditional cultures where people and kids grow up in an environment and in a family and in a school where your community and your family are telling you who you are and all that you can be. They're telling you who you're going to marry. I remember being in Baku, Azerbaijan, and we were sharing the gospel with, with people. And we went up to this one young lady, and um, we asked her this question about the gospel, about Jesus Christ, and we got talking with her. And she began to tell us about how, how much that her faith in Islam was really dictated to her by her family. And to the point where, where the, her family was going to tell her who she was going to marry. And I know some of us dads would like to do that. If we, I don't have a daughter, but if I had a daughter, I'd probably be one of those guys <laughs> that would be telling the daughter who's you, who you're going to marry. I had a little sister, and we were very jealous of her. With her she had, uh, she's the youngest of four. I'm the oldest of four. And between me and her, there was two other brothers, and, and uh, we, were very, we were very diligent on who she brought home, what boys she brought home, and she was always getting on our case, like, don't, like, don't scare my boyfriend, and so the guy that she eventually married was a guy that, that um, I had, hey, you know, why don't you come overseas with me for six months, and we're going to work together on the field in Ukraine, and, um, you know, we're going to have a good time. <laughs> he did, he came over and he did his practicum, you know. And um, 
we, you know, and I'm, I'm going in this direction of this, of this story. Okay, this is what it was, a traditional culture. And these, this young lady was telling us that, like, my parents are going to even tell me who I'm going to marry. And I thought, I asked her, I said, what happens if, you know, you don't like the guy that you're supposed to marry? And she just looked at me like a blank stare. She's like, wow, I, I just never thought of that. I'm sure that my parents would only choose the best for me. And some of these traditional cultures in the East are really going to tell you who you are and what you're going to do and what you're going to become. And they reinforce that with an inheritance that's been worked really, that's, that they have because of, of hard work over the years. Another kind of, the other kind of way that people can um, develop a self-assessment is really the, is what we see in the Western culture. And that is, it's what I want and what I have achieved that makes me who I am. That's the culture that we live in, isn't it? I am what I am because I've got myself there. I've gone to this college. I've gone to these hoops. I've got this on my resume. And today I am what I am. And that really is true. And that, that, is, that is the way it is in the United States. Um, I am what I am because of what I've achieved. And that really is the second way that, that we can, um, in, in some ways without God, derive our self-assessment, our self-importance, our sense of significance. Because what you think of yourself is going to impact um, what your sense of significance and importance in your relationships, okay? Yet John, John the Baptist, his view of himself was neither. It wasn't traditional culture, nor was it his, his achievement. John was so enraptured with the person of Christ that he could boldly proclaim with no injured nor inflated view of himself he could say, I'm just a voice in an insignificant place, proclaiming the most significant person. Jesus in the most significant place, Israel. That was John's, that it was John's proclamation. John did not live in some kind of self-deprecation. He did not live in some self-destructive, sabotaging relationships. And maybe you might be here tonight or today, or maybe you know someone that is in that kind of a thinking where every relationship that they've ever gone into becomes just a sabotage event where they say, and this is, the way that we, this is the way we think when we think that way. We don't understand the grace of God and the favor of God in our life. We say, I could never deserve this person. And that's when I first met my wife. That was first thing I thought. There's no way that I could, she would never say yes to me, ever. And boy, was I wrong, right? Because we don't know the grace and the favor of God. We look, we look at circumstances and we say, you know what? God can't be this good in my life. And you know what happens? We get into something, we pursue it, and because we don't understand the favor and the person of Jesus Christ in our life and God's grace in our life and the authority that we're given as a believer, what we start thinking is, I can't maintain this. Do you ever think that way? You get a dream job, right? And you're like, man, <laughs> you're in this job and it's like, wow. And you're secretly thinking, there's no way that I can maintain this. Wait till these people find out really how bad of an employee I am. There are people that think that way. And maybe you think that way. And I want to say that that's not the right way to think of yourself. That's not, a, that's not God's view of who you are. John didn't think that way. Nor was John on the other side of the ego scale. He was not thinking about himself like, I am something great. I'm the prophet. I'm like Elijah. You know, I get to do this. He did not think that way because he was so enraptured with the person and the nature of Jesus Christ. And so what was John's number two? What was John's view of Christ? 
Well, John's view of Christ is in, is in verse 27 of chapter 1 of John. It is he, and this is what he's saying to the Pharisees. It is he who is coming after me, who is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. Wow. How can someone say that? I think we read through that and it'd be easy for us to not to see the depth of how beautiful what he just said is. John is referring to something that was very taboo in the Middle East. It was something that he was referring to that just for people that lived in that culture was overwhelmingly disgusting, and that was dirty sandals. I don't know if you've ever been in the Middle East. I have been. Uh, the bottom of your foot in the Middle East is something you just don't show to people. And if you show it to somebody, and if you remember during the Iraqi war, uh, that moment when the Saddam Hussein statue was toppled, and all the Iraqis were rushing in from the countryside and from all over the city in, in Baghdad, and they took their shoes. I don't know if you remember this. They took their shoes and they were hitting the statue with the bottom of their shoe. You know what that meant? That was the, that was the worst insult that someone could ever give someone in the Middle East. It was, it was a dire, it was like, it was just the worst thing that you could ever do because the bottom of your foot in the Middle East, back in the time of Christ, after a whole day of walking in sandals, and they didn't have closed shoes like we do today, these sandals were, they would, they would be walking through everything, animals that were just, you know, just, you can imagine stuff everywhere, all over the streets, and they didn't really have street sweepers, and, you know, they didn't have maybe like, what we have today, sidewalks. And so at the end of the day, your feet are pretty, what's the word? Uh, yeah, pretty gross, pretty, pretty grimy, pretty gross. And really nobody wants to touch your shoe. And, and for someone to come in to someone's house and have a servant come and unlatch the shoe from your foot was just a very smelly and disgusting experience as they took the shoe off and they began to clean the foot. And it was so gross, it was so disgusting, that, well, maybe disciples of a rabbi would do that. Uh, maybe a servant who was a Gentile in a Jewish home would do that. But in the law of Moses, Jews cannot do that. A Jewish, if you had a Jewish servant that was such a gross and taboo and disgusting thing that you could not demean, you could not demean a fellow Jew, even if he was a servant, to do that. And so what is, what is John the Baptist saying? He's saying something like really incredible. He's saying, he's like, he's, he didn't even think of himself worthy to untie his sandals. What does that mean? Why did he say that? John was destroying the categories of society. He was destroying the, the, the religious and social pecking order because Jesus was so high. He was so great and so wonderful and such a and this was this was all of his mind and he was like i'm not even i'm not i'm less than a jewish i'm i'm less than a gentile servant where that would unbuckle and clean the shoes of christ, the, the feet of christ i'm not even worthy of that how does somebody talk like that it's because he was so 
engrossed in who Jesus Christ was. He was so amazed. He was so, he was so, he had, and he's going to say this in a minute, but he was so in love with Christ, the love of Christ that was towards him and the mystery and the, and the mission of Christ and the messianic prophecies. He was so enraptured by that. He was so in love with the love of Christ towards himself that he himself was not even categorizing himself or even st- stereotyping himself that I'm in this place in society. He goes, I'm not even on the scale. Christ is so great. And I'm okay with that. John was okay with that. Isn't that amazing? And so, the, the Pharisees, though, they weren't done with their interview, right? They had another question about baptism. And they, and they said, why do you baptize if you're not one of these great prophets? The Pharisees were also very disturbed about the whole baptizing thing that John was doing. Why? Because baptism in Israel at that time was only done for certain people. It's not like what we do today. It's not like we do a baptism um, when someone is, you know, becomes a born-again believer and comes into, into the family of God. In the Judaic times, before the, before the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2, a, a Gentile would be baptized when they wanted to be, con- when they converted to, to, I almost said Islam, <laughs> converted to Judaism. They, they, were, this is, they, were, they were baptized they were, they, were, they were brought to a place where they had to be cleansed and they had to be washed. Why? Because Gentiles, sociologically and religiously, can you believe that? Not just ethnically, but sociology, sociologically and, and ethnically on the racial scale were, as, were equivalent to dogs, to animals. That's exactly how they... And Gentiles are like non-Jews. These are people that were just not Jewish people. And so when John's coming and he's preaching to everybody, he's saying, repent, all of you must be baptized. And he actually says that, all of you must be baptized. What is he saying? He's saying not only to the Gentiles, not only to the Jews, but he's saying this to the Pharisees, all of you are unclean and all of you need to be baptized. All of you are sinners. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the Pharisees understood what they were saying, what he was saying, that not only just the Gentiles were unclean and they needed to be baptized, but even the Jewish people and also the Pharisees. Wow, that's amazing, isn't it? How there's none righteous and there's no, not one. And then in the book of Romans, it says that he's concluded all of us in unbelief so that, purpose clause, he might what? Anybody know how that verse ends? Have mercy on all. And that's so beautiful. As John here is talking about the Lamb of God, he says, behold, the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God. That's such a loaded statement. And it also means a lot to the Jewish mind because behold, the Lamb of God. He's using the word behold there, and I want to look at it in a second. It means to gaze, to digest, to look, to, to infuse, to, to be absolutely occupied and enraptured. Behold the Lamb. Why does he say the word Lamb? Because Lamb, in the Jewish mind, had an amazing meaning. The Lamb here is pointing to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12 was about the Passover lamb. It was a lamb for every house, a lamb for every household, every person, not only just for the dirty, sinful Egyptians that were keeping the people of God in in bondage, but it was for the Jews too. Wow. Jews. Exodus chapter 12. You Jews also needed a lamb. It's not just for the Gentiles. It's not just for the Romans but it's for every person. And so the baptism of John, you all need to repent. And then he says, here's the lamb right here. And he's pointing at the lamb, a lamb for every household. 
in Exodus chapter 12. This was to atone for the sins of the whole world. This word to behold means to tarry. It means to gaze. And when we look at Christ, when we're looking at Christ, we soon realize it's not us looking at him, but he's looking at us. He's beholding us. And we're being deeply known by God. I think we live in a society that we have so much on social media, we put everything out there, yet nobody knows us. Nobody knows people. There's never been so much social and mental disorders since the birth of social media. Uh, Jordan Peterson said this. He said, he said that social media has become a public forum where you have these narcissistic social, quote-unquote, anonymous um, entities or these people that go out and they're making all these comments online. And they're, they're trying to, it looks like this is the public opinion, but it's only a few people that are doing this. And the idea is, is that people, the, the common people, like the public, right? When we had that election a few years ago, everybody was so surprised how the election went. Not this last one, but the one before that. Like, how can so many people vote for one guy? When the public opinion on TV, and it looked like it was totally going the other direction, and people were shocked by, by true public opinion. And you have these individuals that really want to dominate the public forum, social media, and they're really, they're narcissistic, and they're creating a lot of audio and social pollution. But here, the lamb is not that way. The lamb is, he's neither, he's not minuscule in his own eyes, nor is he, nor is he an overlord. And this was problematic for the Pharisees. The Pharisees really didn't understand that. They didn't like this. They didn't, under, they didn't like the baptism of John because of Isaiah 53, when John said to them, look at the lamb, behold the lamb, he's pointing at Isaiah 53. Now today, if you talk to a, if you talk to a Jewish person, someone that really knows, maybe that knows their, knows their Torah, and you ask them, what about, who is Isaiah 53, the suffering servant talking about? They're going to say Israel. Israel suffering over the generations at the hands of Gentile nations. Because they never, and to this day, and even at that time in Isaiah 53, they could not grasp that their Messiah was not going to be some mythological Roman hero, but that he was going to be a suffering servant, that he was coming to pay for the sins of the world, to lay down his life as a lamb. And this was, they could not understand what this strong weakness meant. How did this affect John, John the Baptist's life? How does it affect us today? How could someone be so humble as John the Baptist, yet so bold, so confident, so radical, and preach so hard? That tell, you know what that tells us? It tells us that humility has nothing to do with our personality. Being a humble person doesn't mean that I walk around like this, you know, like all the time. It doesn't mean that I'm putting on some... Sincerity does not mean I'm, I'm naive, right? It, humility has nothing to do with our personality. It has nothing to do with our flesh. Humility is not thinking too high of myself in Romans chapter 12 or too low of myself, but I'm just in rapture with Christ. And when we get to focus on who Jesus Christ is, we see this in Matthew chapter 13. And I love this, and I've talked about it before, but here's Peter, right? He fails... Well, he's, he's in a place where he's like, he's not understanding who he is in Matthew chapter 16. 
And Jesus comes to Peter and he says, who do, who do you say that I am? And then Peter says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Pe- Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father has revealed this un- even unto you. Humility and finding our self-esteem is when we understand who Jesus Christ is through divine revelation, through the Holy Spirit. In settings like this, in times of worship, the Word of God, in times of fellowship, like on Wednesday nights when we get together here, or Monday nights in Bible school, when we're meeting together, there's that revelation of the body of Christ, and there's something, there's a, and then we begin to, we begin to lose sight of ourselves, and we begin to discover who Christ is and what happens. Are you following me? The reciprocation is this, is that Jesus turns around and says, flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you. And he's saying, because you got who I am right, because you understood who I am, Peter, thou shall be Peter. Peter gets his new name in the kingdom. What is your name in the kingdom? You can only get to know what your name in the kingdom, not through self-discovery or self-intentionality, but we discover our identity in the kingdom of God when we begin to discover who Jesus Christ is. And this is what John did. John could be so humble, yet at the same time, not live in some destructive personality disorder. He could be so radical and so confident that he was not an overlord. He was a voice. He was a voice. And I love that. I was thinking about a voice. What is a voice? You know, what does a voice mean? Well, the messenger can be maligned, destroyed, and even killed. But a voice can never be silenced. We're still hearing voices from millennia ago, aren't we? We don't know what they looked like. We don't know maybe necessarily what even Abraham, looked, Abraham Lincoln looked like. We don't know what maybe what, what Shakespeare looked like. We don't, know, we don't know what these people, maybe even Paul or even Jesus, but we, there's a voice and you can't kill the voice. We are something in the kingdom of God that can't be killed. Isn't that amazing? John the Baptist was a voice. And the power and the message of John streams really from his worship of Jesus. If we could learn how to be worshipers, and there's two ways we can learn how to be a worship, worshiper. Voluntarily, we just get on our knees and say, I haven't thanked you, Jesus, today. I just want to worship you. You know, my son sometimes just comes up to me out of the blue and he goes, Daddy, I love you. You know, and that's just a great moment. It's not solicited. It's not something, you know, maybe, maybe later on he wants some candy or something. I don't know. <laughs> but something that's uncoerced. And just remember this about ego. Ego makes us arrogant in the pursuit of our cause or afraid to go because of, an, of the fear of our reputation. John was not living in his ego. We're not worried about our ego and we're not afraid to go. And so the conclusion is this. We, like John, don't have an identity that we've achieved. This is not, who we are today is by the grace of God. And I think anybody here in this room that knows God is going to say the same thing. I am what I am by the grace of God. And I can say that by the favor, the goodness, and the kindness of God. Like, like, like David said, I believe I shall see the good hand of the Lord and I shall not die. So I was counseling years ago, someone who wanted to end their life. And they were just, they, they looked at suicide and they had this weird relationship with death. They were so afraid of it that they were worshiping it, and it got to a point where they felt like they could never overcome it, so they wanted to commit it. Does that make sense? They were living in this fear of death, and they lived in this, and, and they sometimes would call me three o'clock in the morning. It was a guy who just like, he would tell me, I'm not born again. I'm, I know I'm not saved, and this guy was saved, and he just lived in all of this weird stuff, and I said to him, God gave me this verse when David said, 
I shall not die but live and declare the goodness and the works of God. And I said, you're not going to die and you're not going to commit suicide because God's got a plan for you. And you're going to be a testimony of the goodness of God. Today, he's a business owner. He runs a small business in, in Maryland and he's doing great. He's really doing great because of the Bible, not because of what I said to him. We like John or don't have an identity that's achieved, but we, we receive it. It's something that we have received John the Baptist received his identity from the book of Isaiah, chapter 40. He looked at the Bible and he got his identity. And therefore, no one could take it away. Three things about that, and I want to finish. We don't have an identity that's achieved because if we did, it crushes us and it's going to crush other people like the Pharisees. And we talked about that last week. If we have an identity that I've achieved, it's going to crush me eventually because I'm not going to be able to maintain it. And number two, if I can maintain it, then I'm going to crush others who don't have it. Okay? Number two, Jesus didn't have an identity that crushed others because he was the lamb. Jesus received his identity from the Father. Jesus was the, he is God. John chapter one, we talked about that last week. His identity, he understood who he was. Jesus understood where he was and where he was going. And he was the lamb. And because when, he, when we understand who we are in Christ and when we understand our position in Christ, then we can afford to lay down our lives and not worry about the consequences. And not have to get my way every time. Or be justified every time. And I can afford to look like I'm wrong without having to make a big deal. Like, okay, you know what? You really misunderstood me. I've got to go and fight for myself. There's a time for communication. But if we understand who we are in Christ, then we're not out trying to maintain something. And we can lay down our lives and not worry about losing our life. And lastly, we too can be a voice of Christ. And I want to say this, Matthew chapter 11, Jesus talks about John the Baptist. And remember what he said? He said, uh, there was no greater man that lived. He pointed at John the Baptist as the greatest of all men in the Old Testament. And this was the greatest man. This was like, there was no greater than John the Baptist. Yeah, he was greater than David, greater than Moses, greater than all these. How could that be? Because he was a prophet He was a man of God. He was anointed of God, and he got to see Jesus. He was an Old Testament saint. He was an Old Testament man of God who got to see Jesus Christ, and that's what made him great. And yet he says in Matthew chapter 11, and this is the practical application for us to take home with us, is that, but the least in the kingdom, Matthew chapter 11, the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. That means whatever you think of yourself today, well, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a pastor's wife. I'm not a speaker. I'm not an evangelist. I'm just a, you know, I'm just whatever. I'm just, I'm just, I don't even know who I am. You're still greater in the kingdom than John the Baptist. And why is that? Because Christ is in you. Christ is in you. And this is the biggest mystery that the devil wants to hide from your eyes this Christmas season, who you are in Jesus Christ. And if he can get you to understand, if he can get you to, he doesn't care like if you're not sinning, he's not care, he doesn't care if you're not robbing banks and stuff like that. He just does not want you to know who you are in Jesus Christ. Because if we can live in Revelation in Matthew chapter 16 of who Jesus Christ, which was the main prayer of Paul in the book of Ephesians, that your eyes might be open, that you might be enlightened to the spirit of wisdom of the riches of, of who we are in Christ, the riches of grace in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 7 for eternity that we'll be looking at if we could understand that then we wouldn't be living groveling praying sometimes prayers that are just not even the way to pray but we would understand who we are and we can say Abba Father
and we can run right to the throne because we are who we are by the grace of God and we can live as a voice. You know, you and I one day will die probably very soon unless, unless somebody invents a way to prolong your life. Within 80 years, many, maybe many of us won't be in this room. But one thing will live on, and that's the voice, your voice that will live on. And what is that voice today? What is that voice? What's the voice in your family? What's the voice in your business? What's the voice in your neighborhood? What's the voice in your community? What is that voice? It should be very simple. It should be make way for Christ. We can say this to our kids, make way for Christ. Make way for Jesus. Make way for the kingdom of God in your life. And when we do that, people will look back and maybe... Maybe all of our accomplishments are not going to make it to our tombstone, but we can, just have, we can just have, like your name, a voice in the wilderness. And people are going to remember, you know what, I don't know much about that person, but I do know that they were a voice. And that voice never died, and it still speaks to us today. Amen. Mm-hmm.